Section four of Tales of the Uneasy by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Lisa Reichert. The Operation, Part two. The front doorbell rang. She heard Miss Walton's cheery voice making inquiries about Mrs. Mardell's health as she shook the bald snow out of her boots onto the hall mat and plumped her umbrella into the rack. Mrs. Mardell sat still, physically incapable of rising, though she had had but a short bout of pain this time. She had made up her mind to question Miss Walton about Julia. Julia's affairs seemed for the moment essentially her concern. She felt no malevolence towards her in spite of the re-reading of the letter. Miss Walton, the confidant, had never been allowed to see that letter. She should see it now, if she was good and satisfactorily confidential. "'Well, dear, how are you?' Miss Walton had come in, her work-a-day nose reddened with exposure, and her hands thickened with chilblains. "'I suppose you are feeling the continuous cold like the rest of us, and you know, you little minx, that you look best in a tea-gown.' "'Do I look well?' "'Well, a bit bleached, perhaps, and your eyes rather funny and starey, as if you'd been seeing ghosts.' "'Vance has,' she says." A ghost in West Kensington? Nonsense! It was a mock funeral, Vance says, Mrs. Mardell remarked in an even voice, coming out of a house in this street on Christmas Day, when there was nobody died in it, as they told her. She looked closely at Miss Walton's face. Do you know anyone at number 13? An actress, Vance says. Bless her! Christmas pudding, I should say! "'No, I don't know a soul in this street besides yourself.' Mrs. Mardell, with a sigh of relief, leant back again. "'But I say, Florence, you do look dicky,' Miss Walton continued. "'What have you been doing with yourself?' "'Perhaps you will say it is Christmas pudding with me, too,' replied Mrs. Mardell, laughing feebly. "'But I don't know. Somehow I've had a horrid day. I seem to have got a sudden attack of lumbago.' or sciatica or something it doesn't sound likely at your age no does it but it's pains right through me at intervals all through the day i had a fearful bout just before you came i dare say it's nothing rheumatism probably said the other nothing so absurdly painful when it gets hold of one here's tea nice hot tea it'll do you good i've had two goes already oh have a third nothing like tea for us women here let me pour it out your poor little hands are trembling no i'll manage sugar i forget if you take it and lots of milk alice how long is it since you saw julia mrs mardell was surprised at the coolness of miss walton's reception of the seldom pronounced name she might have reflected that the other woman had no particular reason to be shy of it for she had been Florence's and Julia's confidante during the stormy times of the divorce, and had managed to be loyal and friendly to both. She now replied off-handedly to Mrs. Mardell's question. Not for six months. Lost sight of the poor dear, rather. And when you last saw her, how did she look? Handsome, but rather too fat. I can't say I much like the look of that, for she's still quite young. I always fancy it means morbid growths and that kind of thing. Poor old Julie. One never even sees her name in the bills now, does one? Retired on the allowance Joe makes her, I suppose, 
said Florence Mardell bitterly. I can't think how she could bring herself to take his money. Only that she's poor, of course. How poor? One can't tell, replied Alice Walton, with people like Julia. She's Irish. She's the kind of woman who pays a man from Douglas's to come and wave her hair and dry it on towels that you can't see for the holes. You understand. She's the sweetest, cleverest, untidiest soul alive. She took a flat in Paris with a friend, and the state of that flat, I'm told, after a week of Julia, beat even the femme de menage they got in to do for them. They never dressed or ate, but lay about all day in peignoirs and smoked cigarettes. They got in a hypnotist to talk to them about Joe, I believe. Julia makes no secret of her devotion to Joe, as I suppose you are aware. Now, Florence, keep your feet up, there's a good girl. You look ghastly. Yes, I know. So she's still mad on Joe? Tell me more about her. She isn't a woman of much taste, I fancy. Can't dress a bit? No, but a generous creature, full of impulses and never a mean one among them. I do admire her character, I confess. So do I, said Florence Mardell. And so did Joe, I believe. Does. He can't help seeing her qualities and being flattered by her immense devotion to him. Though, of course, he's used to it. He can't help being fascinating. He's such a sprite and yet so strong. Julia was as big again as he was, pretty nearly. He admired her awfully, as little men do always admire big women. I'm not very big, yet Joe admires me. Oh, I know he does, and long may he continue. He may, for Julia, that's one thing. She's strictly hands-off, I know. She's never made the slightest attempt to get him ever to go and see her. He wouldn't go if she did. I shouldn't be too sure of that, said Miss Walton, carried, by love of her subject, beyond the limits of tactfulness. And what would it matter? Joe was truly fond of her till you came along, you little witch. And she's never done anything to set him against her or hurt his self-love. That's what a man minds. I don't see how he could have refused her a thing like that. Nor could you. No, give her credit for her generosity. I believe he proposed it and that she refused to see him steadily. Nobody in theatrical circles thought for one moment you'd keep him against her. The betting was all that, if she had tried, she'd have got him back in a month. No, not if she'd tried, she wouldn't, said Florence Mardell earnestly. She loved him too much. Her lips sketched a grimace as she spoke. Her hand moved to her side and her eyes filled with tears. What is it, dear? The pain again? I was afraid of it. My body was, I mean, but it luckily doesn't seem to mean business this time. And I don't believe I could feel any more. I don't seem to have any organs left. It's the piece of emptiness, exhaustion. Do, dear, let me go on talking and thrashing out things. What I meant when I said that Julia loved him too much was this, that it is a mistake to love so openly and make such a noise about it. Men don't value affection that's cried from the housetops. It just disgusts them. Love at breakfast, love at luncheon, love all day. It's sure to pall. Love shouldn't be mixed up with daily bread-getting. It should be a specialty, not a sort of smoking mixture advertised on every passing omnibus. Go on, child, you interest me. 
Why, you yourself simply adore Joe. A fawn-like, tormenting expression Miss Walton had never seen there came over Florence Mardell's face, as in the weak, exhausted voice of a privileged invalid, she proceeded. I adore Joe as smart women permit themselves to adore the thing they value and mean to keep. I believe I prize Joe, not for what he is, though I'm aware he's a genius, but for what he means to me. Light and kisses and frocks and champagne. There isn't so much of that as there would be if Julia and her allowance didn't stop the way. I love Joe because he's the fount of life to me, because I feel good when he is in the room and dull when he is out of it. I happen to know that I shouldn't feel that about him if he came to me ill and hipped and unsuccessful. Sounds mean, but it's true. I perfectly enjoy the placards telling me that he can make a cat laugh and critics saying he is like what Garrick used to be, an abridgment. What is it? I am quite cross with him when the notices are poor, and I don't in the least long then to take his head on my shoulder and comfort him. It's he who has to comfort me. Julia had a rather different theory. Yes, and Julia lost him, and I got him. She called him her boy and her baby. He even told me so, saying how nice it was of her. Quite sincere. He thought so, I dare say. I knew better, as if any man liked to be made to feel small. She'd have handed the moon down to him if she'd had it in her power. And when he cried for such a little easy thing as a divorce, of course she gave it to him. A fool, I call her. I don't know about that, the friend replied combatively. Greater love hath no woman than she lay down her marriage lines for her husband. Well, I love him, but I couldn't have done that. I should simply have had to stick to him just the same, and then, if he had thrown me over, nothing would ever have induced me to take money from him. But if you were extravagant and nearly starving, I'd have found a man to support me and buy me frills. Then you couldn't have loved him to degrade the thing he had once set store by. If Joe had left me, anything could have become of me for all I cared. I see what you are driving at, Alice. You think I can't feel love as Julia does, because I haven't got beetle-brows meeting over my forehead, and a big contralto chest to sigh with. My way with Joe, whether I do it from self-control or inclination, comes out best. A man like Joe needs a lot of spoiling, but not from the woman he cares for. I let outsiders do it for me. I don't cosset him or make a point of being home every afternoon from my calls at an unearthly hour to dine with him. If a boy offers me a dinner, I accept, and Joe gives me my taxi fare and looks me over and sees that my dress, for the other man, mind you, is all right. Nor do I wait up for him when he comes back. I just see supper's laid out all right and the fire kept up and go to bed. I don't make him look ridiculous by fetching him at the theatre, as some actors' wives do. Julia, I hear, used to take parts that didn't suit her, so as to ensure her being on the spot with him every night. I never know where he is, and I don't go getting his pals to play detective and tell me. I may be conceited, but I do flatter myself that wherever Joe is, he is thinking of me, and of how soon he can get back to me. I think you are perfectly right, Miss Walton replied rather sardonically. 
It's the best view to take of marriage. And for a woman married to a popular actor, the only one. Do you happen to know where Joe is now? Yes, I happen to be able to tell you. He is at the theatre, rehearsing the new play. They must be through by now, though. He'll be here in a minute. I haven't seen him since yesterday. We dine together at six o'clock. And it's half-past five now. Well, I must be off. Good-bye, old girl, and I wouldn't neglect those pains if I were you. I expect it's only rheumatism, but as a general rule, internal pains should not be ignored. You look rather flushed. I must go and put on some powder before Joe comes. Good-bye. Tell Gladys to come and clear away the tea as you go out. Mrs. Mardell was left alone, with two imperfectly drained teacups and some broken crumbs of cake on a Japanese tray. The spirit lamp under the kettle had gone out. She missed its cheerful flame. She was hemmed in, her knees were imprisoned by the flaps of the tea-table so that she could not lie back. She felt disinclined to move and go upstairs for that dust of powder that was to impress Joe. Everything was a bother. She felt very stupid, but she had no more pain, thank God. So she sat on, waiting for the maid to clear away the tea-things and set her free, bolt upright in her hostess corner of the flower-begarlanded sofa, with the pink-shaded lamp behind her, convenient for reading, only she did not want to read. Her head drooped till her face was in shadow. Her eyes were fixed on a liberty cosy corner that adequately filled an ugly bare place in the room, but that no one ever sat in, and then and there she had a vision. It seemed to her that her sight pierced through the faint scaffolding of white wood pillars that bore up the inane piece of furniture. She had a view of a cold, bare room, distempered in pale green and nearly empty of furniture, excepting for a bed and an armchair. Presently she distinguished a table made of slabs of glass, covered with bits of shining steel and physic bottles. She smelt a strong odour of ether. Then sundry persons surged into her field of vision, though they had been there all the time. Two white-capped nurses, bending solicitously over a bed where a third person lay, with long black hair spread over the pillow. A woman who was speaking so faintly that Florence felt, rather than heard, what she said. "'You are sure you have sent for him?' the image seemed to say urgently. "'Nurse! Nurse! It's the Quality Theatre!' "'Yes, madame, we have telephoned through. Quality Theatre. It would have been as well. Can you not give us your husband's home address, madame?' "'I don't know it,' the patient replied wearily. "'But he will be at the theatre.' He is always at the theatre. It's his life now. He'll come. He'll come. Surely, madame. The nurse turned away to speak to a colleague who had apparently only recently left the room and now returned. Florence then saw the features of the woman on the bed, features never seen by her except across the footlights, charged with bright white and rose. They were grey and unrecognisable now, yet Florence knew whose they were. She heard the conversation of the two whispering women the while. "'She's sinking fast,' said the elder nurse. "'She'll last till he comes, I think,' replied the younger. "'He's just telephoned through, and he's on his way here.' With her words the whole house and its ramifications were now revealed to Florence Mardell, as it were the open front of a doll's house. 
she saw the steps leading up to the door there were eight of them the hall the staircase and the room where the patient lay at one and the same time she heard a jingling of bells and the prod of a swift hansom suddenly pulled up at the behest of the urgently waved umbrella of a man within her husband she saw him leap out and dash up the steps to the door that was flung open as soon as he touched the bell she missed no single stage of his progress upstairs to julia's room the nurse opened the door of it admitting him and passed out herself florence recognized joe's familiar gesture the overcoat hastily flung off and thrown aside disclosing the dapper little ordinary man with the long lock of hair that was his mark of genius lifting on his forehead as usual and he impetuously advanced towards the bed she realized the weak complacence that stood for paradisical joy on the face of the woman lying there whose light of life was too nearly extinguished to permit a finer demonstration but the actor's face was a marvel this expression evoked for the beloved dying woman only was of such a tragic madness as no mime could ever hope to originate or imitate florence had never seen that look on his face and sharp knowledge shot through her that even if she in her turn lay dying she would not see it then a sob shook but did not interrupt her steady absorption in the sight spread before her her hungry eyes watched the discreet nurse left in charge retire to the mantelpiece and thoughtfully examine her sleeve links as the lover with passionate solicitude and a cunning born of intimate usage sat down and laying his arms round his mistress's neck raised her a little so as to gain her ear for the last whispers of love as a ghost to earth returned the second wife apprehended the dreadful sense of the words those two exchanged together joe spoke with no sense of renewal but as if julia and he had parted but a few hours or it may be days ago florence could not resent but she suffered the first pangs of a lifelong sorrow as she listened to julia's faint sighs of content her weak rejoinders to joe's protestations of undying fidelity his vows that turned to old wise baby talk and the promises she wrung from him so easily the nurse still fumbled with her sleeve links blinded by unusual tears you will see me buried julia exacted her hands twisting in joe's hair playing with the long lock you will make all the arrangements for me joe won't you i want you i want you to manage it vance was right joe was the puny ghost mourner and florence looked on eagerly again it shall be our wedding our remarriage he soothed her we meet again to part no more you and i julia my julia what did he mean to do when julia died as die she must it was very near now florence listened and looked their voices seemed fainter more furtive the scene in the bedchamber was growing evanescent ragged as if there were rents in the film she sometimes feared so eager was she to see the whole of her own tragedy that she was beginning to distinguish the wooden lines of the supports of the cosy corner that framed and crossed her view she realized that julia's hour was approaching and that the vision would fade with its instigator the doctor had come in and the other nurse 
she could detect on all three faces the professional discouragement painted there by their foreknowledge of the event they would look cheerful normal again after what must be was over but joe's face surely could never be set in comic lines again those muscles so deeply inured to tragedy might never relax or unbend she knew it when julia died though at the precise moment no one spoke no one moved in the room for a while julia died where she listed where joe would have her in his arms the shape of julia would never go out of them there would never be room there any more for florence whom he had not loved she raised her head with a jerk the pink cushions and hangings of the liberty cosy corner filled up the lines of the woodwork again the pillars framed triviality as usual she was sitting in her own drawing-room and gladys the stupid maid was there just come in to take away the tea-things mrs mardell spoke dinner will be late to-night yes mum i see it's just gone half-past six now your master is kept he has things to see to gladys eager to show she understood interrupted yes mum vance will keep dinner back she folded up the table and set her mistress free mrs mardell had no more pain and knew she would not have any more but she sat on in her place until seven the hour at which her husband usually left for the theatre during this piece in which his part entailed a somewhat lengthy and careful make-up she heard the twist of the latch-key in the door below and for the first time in her life shrank from meeting the eyes of the man she adored with a new and passionate love but it was the lover of julia who would come in to her and say something kind as usual kind merely kind was all he had ever been in all these years of her blindness she put out her hands as if to push him from her and her lips almost framed the words stay oh stay away no use no use her observation tensely quickened told her that he paused in the hall for there was an abrupt cessation of all movement he was hesitating then he made up his mind to the disagreeable duty so florence read the gesture his sturdy dutiful footsteps could be heard ascending a wild whiff of ether seemed to precede him her eyes dropped uncontrollably as he touched and turned the handle of the door gently it was done he was in the room how did he look she must know she raised her sad eyes and contemplated the dwarf actor standing there on the threshold of the pretty cheap drawing-room oppressing appalling her with his overpowering dignity his hair was disordered and clung matted to his damp forehead the long lock fell over it in the style of one of the good-natured roisterers he excelled in portraying but his face had the make-up of a clown the dark features stood out in a mask of putty-coloured whiteness all but the lips which had no red those eyes which had just looked on death stared down on her not unkindly but unseeing she spoke at last to break the awful spell which was winding itself round and round her more than for any other reason julia is dead she said i know he took a step forward into the room and made a cold gesture of menace she recoiled then rose and faced him 
She died in my arms. I loved her. He turned away. It was as if he had laid a book aside and a leaf had been folded down. He muttered with a semblance of forced preoccupation with the business of life. I just looked in to tell you that I am going straight back to the theatre. Without any dinner? she shrieked. Then more calmly. Well, you will have something to eat when you come home, won't you? What time will that be? It was the first time in her life she had asked such a question, and his answer to it, delivered over his shoulder as he went downstairs, cut her to the heart. Perhaps never! Scant consolation! She knew that he did not mean to kill himself, at least not yet, for he had promised to make the arrangements for and attend Julia's funeral. End of section 4